You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with four contributors to a new edited collection titled The Movement for Black Lives, Philosophical Perspectives, published in late 2021 by Oxford University Press. We're joined by Alex Madva, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Cal Poly Pomona, where he also directs the California Center for Ethics and Policy. Along with Brandon Hogan, Michael Cholby, and Benjamin Yost, he co-edited this collection and is the co-author with Cholby of the included piece, Can Capital Punishment Survive Black Lives Matter? And Vanessa Wills, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and authored the essay, He Ate Jim Crow, Racist Ideology as False Consciousness, which takes up Karl Marx's treatment of ideology as a way to understand the persistence of anti-black racism. And Ian Olasoff, a doctoral candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City, who authored an essay in the volume on philosophy, language, and how we talk about black liberation, titled The Movement for Black Lives and the Language of Liberation. And Dana Miranda, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at University of Massachusetts in Boston, the author of The Violence of Leadership in Black Lives Matter, which examines the relationship between movement aims and the distinction between leadership and mobilizations that are leaderful. Hello, everybody. Vanessa, Alex, Dana, Ian. It's great to see and hear from you all today. Thanks for um, having us. I'm really glad that you all made the time. Uh, it's hard to schedule in April for uh, five professors <laughs> uh, to find time to talk, um, but we found it. I'm really happy we have a chance to talk about this volume. Um, I think uh, it's really an interesting collection. It certainly is a much needed uh, collection of, of essays. And, you know, I'm thinking about Alex as editor, Vanessa, Dana, Ian as contributors, really interested to see what this volume means to you all uh, as philosophers, as academics, as writers, as thinkers. Um, so it's fantastic to have some time to talk about it. And so I just wanted to start sort of going through uh, each, uh, you know, sort of cycling through each of you to ask, you know, what for you is so important about this project? You know, why undertake this kind of project now? Um, and, you know, it, it, you know, if you're an editor, uh, in the case with you, Alex, uh, editing work is, is enormously time consuming, takes up a lot of energy. So it has to have some kind of passion project moment to it. And as contributors, you know, I mean, we take time out of our own uh, book writing and other essay writing uh, to contribute to these sorts of things. So, uh, Alex, maybe you could get us started uh, as an editor um, and thinking about, you know, why this project now, uh, what led to it and why do you think it's urgent? Right. Yeah. Well, for starters, I'd just like to express my gratitude to all the contributors to the volume and being an editor is difficult work, but it was an incredibly rewarding experience getting to read all of their chapters. And I'd also like to um, express gratitude to my co-editors, Benjamin Yost and Brandon Hogan and Michael Cholby. 
um, that we it was really a wonderful collaboration. So I'm really excited about how it all turned out. In terms of the um, timeliness or the, you know, why the volume now, I actually think a kind of striking way into this point is one of the reviews we got when we submitted the volume to Oxford, because actually one of the reviewers was very critical. And they said, I'm not enthusiastic about this volume. And then among their criticisms, they said, moreover, BLM is already much less of a public thing. In terms of public profile, BLM has become passe. The volume doesn't engage this reality. Okay, so we received these reviews in the spring of 2019. <laughs> um, and then That's lo and behold, a year passes. And then there's the tragic killing of George Floyd, followed by the largest protests in American history. And then suddenly the editors reached out to us like, can you edit all of the chapters so that they're now talking about what's going on right now? And uh, we did send that email out and we you know, made a brief note about it in the introduction. But unfortunately, these issues are really evergreen. And so there's a can be a waxing and waning of public attention that tracks different high profile tragedies. But it's really something that um, is, you know, we're going to be stuck with for a really long time. And so I don't I think, um, you know, there's no time like the present to try to engage with these issues and. So um, I think it was, you know, a really exciting opportunity to think about how folks with the training that we have, like philosophers, you know, analyzing arguments, uh, close reading, critical thinking, um, is there something that folks with our kind of training can can lend to the project? Um, uh, you know, and I think the movement is already a very philosophical one, but we thought that maybe uh, folks that were coming at it from our perspective might be able to. Um, shed some light on it from a certain perspective. Yeah, Vanessa, as a contributor, sort of what drew you to this project? Yeah, um, I was I was very excited to participate. And I mean, one of the things that drew me to the project, I mean, in, in point of fact, were the editors <laughs> and the... That's and, not and a small part of any of these I things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and some of the folks that I knew um, would be contributing, you know, and so that, uh, you know, it, it gave me a certain confidence in the in the quality of the project and um, of it being done in a, in, a, in a way I expected it would be a good um, kind of working experience, and it was. Um, but in terms of the content of it, you know, I think adding to this point about the changing in um, social and cultural moods and the relevance of these topics, I mean, one thing that has to be said is that, uh, frankly, the mood has shifted yet again, right, where there's all sorts of other um, political problems that are, uh, I think, uh, you know, frankly, more at the forefront, right? So one of the things that a volume like this does is, insofar as especially at the time of this massive uptick of struggle, one of the things that was notable about it was that Black people had long been protesting, and now you had a moment where large numbers of white people in the United States and internationally were also drawn into struggle. And you saw mm -hmm. these um, 
polls that showed uh, that there were shifts in the sort of mainstream awareness and concern about racism in the United States, the the likes of which, you know, there hadn't been such a kind of sharp and sudden and large um transformation of people's attitudes about these questions, you know, since perhaps the 60s. So um, one place that that's reflected is that philosophers are not immune to that, right? Our consciousness shifts as well in response to struggle, in response to what's happening outside of the university. And thank goodness we're not immune to it. So I think part of the value is capturing what were philosophers thinking in these moments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What are, how is it that we were responding and attempting to be of service in some way, right, to these movements? Dana, how about you? So I also want to thank the editors, the contributors, and also for being on this podcast. I think for myself, I actually have to go back further in time to 2016 when the movement was, again, not first starting, but first getting national and popular attention. Mm -hmm. And so for myself, I actually was interested in the mode of leadership because I was reading Fanon, decentralized leadership, just how can we be accountable? How can we be a part of movements? And I wanted to know my part. And as a graduate student, there was actually a call for papers for a mini symposium on Black Lives Matter. And the same paper, again, in a much less polished form, was submitted, rejected. I was like, okay, I'm a graduate student. I'm still going to attend the symposium. I'm still interested. Let's see the other papers. And again, it's not a shock, but the mini symposium was comprised of, again, all tenured faculty, assistant professors, associate professors, and they're all white. And none of the same people that presented at the symposium have written about Black Lives Matter in a significant way moving forward. And for me, it was about when you have this national attention and now philosophers are interested in the flip side of like the positivity of like putting our critical eye is that people were using it for cachet. They weren't connected to the black radical tradition. They weren't connected to the struggle. And it was a publication that didn't really merit philosophical attention for them. Mm-hmm. And when I heard about this book project, it's like, okay, these are the people, I know some names, I know the editors, I looked into them, that they were actually not only interested, philosophically curious, but they're committed. And for me, that's what the book project actually represents. It's not simply philosophy, it's a commitment to doing public philosophy, a commitment to understanding a struggle that whether the public eye has it, whether a book reviewer thinks it's passe or not, (laughs) <laughs> the fight for Black freedom is still ongoing. Um, so for me, again, it's it's been very long to get this work published. I'm glad I didn't publish it as a grad student. I'm glad I waited to actually be um, in this collection. Yeah, no, that's an interesting story. I'm, I have lots of thoughts, but I, I won't go on about the, the you know, it's passe. It's a really, uh, it's really struck me. But anyway, Ian, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what's already been said. I think one thing that might be helpful to add is that I, I, I come back to this point often that social movements unfold on a lot of different fronts. 
They unfold on different strategic fronts. They unfold in different spaces. And some of those spaces are more theoretical than others. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's one of the sort of distinctive things that philosophers can contribute to social movements is sort of participating in the theoretical fronts that constitute them. Um, and I think one of the things that's distinctive about th- that sort of theoretical work in particular is that it goes on to a great extent even when, the, when, the, when people aren't in the streets anymore, even when yeah. the movement isn't capturing the national attention that it, you know, periodically does. And, you know, I think you see this in the, you know, history of the left and the labor movement in the U.S. when those things have been, you know, uh, on, uh, on, on the ropes. You know, there's been an active, r- relatively active discussion of those sorts of issues in the academy. And that's one thing that we can do to contribute. I mean, uh, I'll also say just as far as the subject matter of my like particular contribution to the, to the book, I think part of what's distinctive about the struggle for black liberation like now is the channels of communication that mm-hmm. are available to it and the rhetoric surrounding it. And that's, that's part of what makes BLM different. And so if we want to understand the movement, we want to understand what it's about. If we want to understand its strengths and weaknesses, you know, we have to understand the, the rhetoric, uh, broadly speaking, that's offered in support of it. And so, you know, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of meaningful work for philosophers to do here, but coming from my, you know, my little background in philosophy of language from my little niche, that's that's seemed like a, a place I could pitch in. Yeah. So let me um, let me ask about the, the title and subtitle. It sort of continues a, a, really from a, a lot of the remarks just now. You know, obviously the the title is straightforward: you know, Movement for Black Lives. Um, you know, it's the moment that animates the book and to which the book uh, the essays are a response. But the subtitle is what's distinctive about it, right? Philosophical perspectives. And, I, you know, I was listening and that, that, you know, to hear this sort of first wave criticism or first moment criticism from a reviewer around, you know, it's, it's passe, it's not in the public. You know, it, the fact that the subtitle is philosophical perspectives is interesting to me because if there's one thing that defines philosophy is it's 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 not just tendency but almost commitment to being late to the scene, right? And I think there's something defensible about that with philosophy that you know that it's it's a contemplative art and so it it, it is not necessarily commentary on on current matters, whether they're cultural or political, but at the same time often are. But it's interesting that, uh, you know, that the timeliness would get evoked with this particular thing. By interesting, I I, I can probably fill in a lot of blanks easily on that. But I'm interested for each each of you, because, you know, philosophy is a broad field. Um, You know, in in some ways, it's it's a name that doesn't have much content, except as a kind of orientation towards asking questions and and responding to them. But I'm interested what this philosophical perspective means for each of you in terms of of the approach of the volume and as an approach to a really urgent 
longstanding urgent, but also currently urgent uh, political moment. Like what is important about a philosophical perspective? You know, what's meaningful and urgent about a philosophical perspective in this moment about this movement? And maybe start with you, Vanessa. Such a hard question. (laughs) I think that for me, um, I see... I, I see myself and I certainly saw myself in, um, in my piece, which was about, um, a kind of concept of false consciousness and using that to think about this particular slogan, Black Lives Matter. Um, and for me, I saw myself as wanting in any case to, draw out a kind of conceptually, as conceptually clear and as conceptually sound and as internally consistently as possible, um, draw out what is being said, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. What is it, what is it actually, um, or, or what are actually the aims of this movement? Um, so in that, you know, of course I'm, I'm guided by, uh, someone like my dear friend Karl Marx, <laughs> right? Who, mm-hmm. who, who says things like, um, you know, communism is not an ideal to which the world must adjust itself, right? It's an already existing movement abolishing the current state of things. Um, and so as a philosopher, that's what I'm usually trying to do, right? Is to understand what is it that already exists um, socially and politically that is tending to overthrow the current state of things and how can I express that in as conceptually clear and as conceptually productive a manner as possible. How about you, uh, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think very generally, not just speaking about my own chapter, I think there are some sort of conceptual tools that philosophers have that, that, that I don't want to say that we own, but at least that, that we have some familiarity with that mm-hmm. are really useful for understanding the movement and thinking critically about it. And there are sort of, you know, areas of sort of conceptual difficulty or unclarity that I think philosophers can intervene in helpfully. And I think Vanessa's work on false consciousness does this and Dana's work on leadership does, does this. Um, I think there are also different political tendencies that make up the movement. And I think those tendencies can be sort of articulated or explicated uh, uh, helpfully by philosophers. Like that's one of the things we can do. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. you know, some, some of the more reformist elements of, of the movement can, you know, get, get their voice. Some of the more radical abolitionist elements can be articulated helpfully and so on. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm repeating myself here, but just to, uh, as far as my own chapter goes, yeah, I think there are, I think a philosophical perspective on the speech and the communicative action that surrounds the movement and makes the movement up can help clarify what the movement is about. I think to a, to a really significant extent, the movement is like sort of a a Rorschach blot for, for a lot of its critics. Like 
I think that's true both for critics on on the left. I think I think this is actually probably exemplified by by Tommy Curry's chapter in the in the book. Like for for him, it's it's um you know it's it's a sort of uh, branding exercise by uh, an intersectional feminist, you know, wing of the professional managerial class. And, you know, that's what the movement looks like to him. And I think for its, you know, right wing and liberal detractors, it looks like, you know, mob violence and, you know, get, getting clear about what the movement actually is and what people are demanding and what people want means looking at the communicative tools and the rhetoric that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. have gone along with it. So, um, you know, I don't think me writing this chapter is going to change everybody's mind, but, but I think at least, you know, I, I hope at least we can get a conversation started about, about trying to get on the same page about what the movement, what the movement, uh, is about, um, trying to get over that Warshock block problem to whatever extent we can. Um, and I, I think that, I think also that yeah, like understanding understanding the rhetorical tools that make up the movement, yeah, like like I think I said before, helps clarify what their strengths are. You know how they manage to capture people's attention, how they manage to manipulate people's attention successfully when they do, um, and also their their weaknesses. You know when when people haven't been convinced, when people have shut out the. Um, you know, the messages that they're getting, why? Um, I think there's a role for philosophy to play there. Yeah, Dana, how about you? So for myself, I think just doing political philosophy, Africana philosophy, I wanted to not only think of things theoretically, but also say, like, if I'm interested in freedom, if I'm interested in well-being, and there's a movement going on. I was I was really just having King in the back of my mind. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That yes, I want to be in a reflective mood. I want to have full understanding, but circumspection will meet accountability frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a famous interview with this young black child at Wall Street, and she just goes around asking people from Wall, like bankers, um, "What will you tell your children when the revolution comes?" Those are great. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's yeah, one la- like it makes me laugh. But I think like that sense of accountability to not only understand yeah. black struggle but black struggle for what ends. Why am I interested in doing these projects? Why am I interested in writing about leadership? It's to obtain black liberation for not only myself but like for my loved ones. So the the people for black people writ large. And so I think a philosophical perspective in Africana philosophy or political philosophy and the traditions I follow, it's about having that in mind. So yes, bring conceptual clarity to Black Lives Matter, because when I presented at the APA Pacific uh, Pacific in 2019, I just asked a simple question, who are typically known as the three founders of Black Lives Matter? Like, again, that's already controversial because Black Lives Matter is a movement, is an organization and chapter. But even that simple question, one person in an audience of over 60 people, all philosophers, could only say Alicia Garza. Interesting. And so I was like, okay, Patricia Conclores, then you have Opal Tometi, and then you have people that are affiliated and popularly get characterized as leaders, Sean King, DeRay, but aren't affiliated. 
And so for me, part of the book project in a philosophical perspective is showing that clarity. What we're talking about as a larger movement has many different ends that is not clear for people. Even people that go to protests, they just go to the closest protest. It says Black Lives Matter. Is it affiliated with the chapter? Who's actually organizing it? Mm-hmm. There's not really that accountability that I think should be done. Um, I think the philosophical perspective in many of the chapters that contribute to this show that it's not as simple as people make it. Yeah. Um, even last year, I had a whole, no, two years ago, I had a conversation with a colleague who really just reconceptualized Black Lives Matter as just a, a newer civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's part of the Black radical tradition, but it's organized differently. It's having different ends. Um, it's international in scope. It has, again, but that level of detail, even for an academic, wasn't there because I already know what Black people, like, it's not taking Black people in their philosophies and ideas seriously. And I think mm-hmm. this book takes it seriously and says, no, we have to be accountable to understanding movements. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested, you know, and sort of why I circled around to, to you last, Alex, was, you know, the editor's, you know, vision and inception, you spoke a little bit to it, uh, is always... Uh, you know, a different perspective, right? I mean, there's the grunt work of editing and emailing and all of that, but um, also the vision of the volume and the motivation for it. But what's interesting in these three remarks is, you know, this combination of the work of philosophy as doing a, a kind of conceptual clarity, whether that's critical, affirmative, or somewhere in between, but also in that uh, conceptual clarity work, which is, I think, really like the hallmark of philosophical thinking and writing. Um, there's also that sense that you were, spoke of at the very beginning of your remark, Dana, of, of the urgency of a project. And you know, what does it mean, you know, when you talk the little girl interviewing Wall Street bankers? I agree with you. I mean, they're funny. But part of what's funny is the really, you know, almost like trans-historical moment of asking that question, you know, what will, what will, you know, what will happen to you in the revolution? What will your children and grandchildren think? That sense of, you know, that this is this is a question that the volume asks that is of ultimate stakes and of urgency. But also, you know, I've wondered, and I, I really heard it in, in all three of the responses so far, and, and Alex, curious what you have to say, obviously. But I also heard in that, you know, this sense that I always ask, like, what will it mean for philosophers as individuals, but also as a profession to have had this movement pass without philosophical work on it? I mean, I, it is, I have to say this volume made me ask myself that about the past. Like, what was philosophy doing during the civil rights movement and the Black Power and Black Panther movements during the Reagan years? Right. During the wars in Central America, you know, Israel, Palestine, we just add to these and start to ask, you know, what has philosophy been doing in taking a time out on all of this? And so, I mean, that's, you know, hearing both the seriousness of the work, but also that sense of the necessity to respond, I think is so important. And I heard that in a little bit in how you said you initiated the project, Alex. So um, uh, maybe before uh, Vanessa, you want to say something uh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm oh. sorry. Go ahead, Vanessa. Go ahead. I wasn't sure which was which. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, I probably mumbled. 
Okay, yeah, I just I just wanted to say real quickly, um, I mean, we know a lot about what philosophy was doing during the civil rights movement, right? I mean, um, philosophy departments were, were fighting for their lives. There's uh, some really interesting um, work about the impact of McCarthyism in philosophy, yeah. um, which uh, of the humanities was probably the most heavily targeted and attacked. Um, somebody like Angela Davis, we know exactly what she was doing in the civil rights, you know, sure. during that time. And, and I just think like, that's something that um, often we don't necessarily name as a, as a factor in the development of the discipline. But I think it's uh, actually impossible to overstate the extent to which the concerns of philosophy um, have not been shaped by philosophers, have been shaped by politicians and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, by, 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 factors that are completely external uh, to department life or to academic mentoring. Um, and, uh, you know, which is a threat that we face now again, right, um, with uh, various um, moves in, in the legislatures of various states to uh, prevent things like the teaching of critical race theory and so on, right? So, so yeah, just, um, you just wanted to add that as well. That, yeah. I mean, I think McCumber's uh, Time in the Ditch book, I don't know exactly. generationally if any, uh, how many of you share that moment, but I remember when that book, people were talking about it coming out, and the gossip around it was so clearly targeting, like undermining the book, because it was going to say so much of what you just said, Vanessa, which is, um, you know, philosophy is deeply indebted to this, and its aloofness is actually uh, conceals you know, often the reactionary conservative dimensions, but also the way those reactionary conservative dimensions left a lot of people um, on the outside or left them vulnerable. And it's sort of origins of the distinction between Anglo-American and European philosophy, you know, in that book in particular was was about yeah. that. But I'm glad you mentioned Angela Davis. I mean, it was, you know, one of the most important philosophers that I think in some ways you could see the political moment leading to her often not being thought of as a philosopher. Right. I mean, after being fired by the regents, I think that was probably her last time teaching in a philosophy department. So there, yeah, there you go. I, I teach an Angela Davis seminar every, every couple of years and it's the intensely philosophical work. But students always attest to that. They're like, wait, I thought she was an icon. This stuff's really hard to read. <laughs> So, Alex, um, as editor, I'm curious how you thought of the philosophical perspectives part. Yeah. Of the so, I, I, uh, I really, sorry to cut you off there. I really appreciated Vanessa's point there because I was just about to heap on additional criticisms to philosophers and was immediately thinking about the late, great Charles Mills talking about John Rawls. And, you know, he has a couple pages dedicated to civil disobedience, but for the most part, it's just part of this tradition of like systematically ignoring. Uh, racial justice questions and talking about them explicitly under that label. And so it's really a really important reminder to remember that all these folks are acting within a system of incentives and constraints where um, like the, the McCarthyism is, is a really important part of the story. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, one thing that we definitely had in mind with the title, and this was also thanks to some helpful, um, uh, some of the other reviewers for the volume that were very helpful um, was, you know, really bearing in mind, as I mentioned earlier, that the movement is already very philosophical. And so I think this also builds on, you know, what Dana was talking about, about how these folks have a really 
rich self-understanding of what they're up to and how the how the movement um, builds on and differs from prior movements and things like that. And um, but I think there's um, still um, a, a use for the kind of conceptual clarity work that we are bringing to the table, partly because and this is stuff that ties into Ian's work, although there are folks out there saying this is what we're about. And of course, there's lots of internal diversity within the movement. Then, um, you know, when that conversation is playing out in tweets and memes and slogans, it can be very easily subject to misinterpretation, willful or even, you know, well-meaning. And mm-hmm. um, and this also plays into Vanessa's important work about false consciousness and just these like layers of misunderstanding about these things. And so, you know, when, when so much of the discourse is playing out online, it reminds me of the cartoon where like the one person says, are you coming to bed? And the other one says, I can't, this is important. What? Someone is wrong on the internet, right? Um, and so I think in that context saying like, hey, we're going to slow down. We're going to survey the literature. We're going to, we're going to talk about these memes. We're going to sort of step outside of this in the context of an extensive book treatment where we're going to like, there's so many misconceptions about the, you know, leaderless, leaderful stuff that Dana talks about. And there's so many misconceptions about what people who say Black Lives Matter mean, right? And so it's like, I think um, to, to have a volume that's really um, both trying to address itself to the moment, but also trying to put itself out there as a kind of enduring statement about how, um, how we see things from here, um, that, that we, we hope that that could be a valuable contribution. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, this is uh, speaking of, of, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, Vanessa's essay, um, around false consciousness. I want to ask each of you about your essays, um, in the collection and maybe start with you, Vanessa. I wanted to, in some ways, just ask you to walk through the title, um, <laughs> you know, the title, he ate Jim Crow and then the subtitle, right. Talking about, uh, about racist ideology and false consciousness. So I'm curious to just to hear you talk about the, you know, walk through the title, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, lays out the themes of the essay in in I think really interesting ways. Um, And also ask you sort of, as you, as you walk through the title and, 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 you know, what, what animates the essay, why this, why the Marxist problem of false consciousness is for you such an important frame uh, for thinking about the movement for Black Lives, but also the relationship between philosophy and justice struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the title is uh, And He Ate Jim Crow, Racist Ideology as False Consciousness. And the main the main part of the title, And He Ate Jim Crow, it comes from uh, a speech given by Martin Luther King. And when I, when I, happened upon that line in the course of my research for this article, I probably let out a yelp because <laughs> anytime I'm like, that's it, that's the title. That's what the yeah. paper's about. Um, so, um, so there, um, King is making a point. He's making a point that is um, familiar from W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction 
And he's explaining to the audience that uh, anti-black racism among whites, and especially he's talking about poor and working class whites, um, King is explaining that the the anti-black racism that characterizes their attitude and comportment towards black people can't be thought of as a completely spontaneous creation of theirs, and that it has to be situated within an an understanding of in whose interests is it for poor and working class whites to have these attitudes. And King argues that uh, when we look at uh, the uh, post immediately post Civil War South, um, during the process of reconstruction, and then redemption, right, this um, attempt on the part of successful attempt, I should add, um, Mm -hmm. on the part of uh, white, um, especially Democratic um, Southerners um, to overthrow the advances of Reconstruction, that one of the most important tools in their arsenal was an ideological one, as they sought to um, push back a kind of emergent working class movement that threatened their own material circumstances and their own, you know, profit and ability to uh, regain, you know, their former glory Um, Mm -hmm. that an important tool for this as they, as they took things away um, from working class people uh, was to um, replace it in a way, right. With, uh, uh, racial superiority, right? Mm-hmm. White racial superiority. So, again, something that we hear about in Du Bois when Du Bois talks about the public and psychological wage, and so often in in this article and in really all of the work that I'm doing, I'm trying to understand the relationship between matter and ideas. If you pick up anything I've ever written, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Um, and I just thought this was such an evocative line because uh, this is what King is thinking about, right? What is the relationship between these material circumstances, between the differences in power? Um, how do we understand the immiseration, right, of this group of, of, of people, poor and white workers of white and black races? Um, how do we understand that uh, together with understanding the sort of ideological, right, conceptual landscape and how these things interact. So, um, so I thought the idea, you know, if he ate Jim Crow, well, of course you can't eat Jim, you know, you'll be hungry, but that's sort of the point. Um, and then, and then the subtitle racist ideology is false consciousness. So, um, one thing that, also motivated me to write this piece was that I thought that the concept of false consciousness uh, is just given a bad rap. Um, And people usually think it means something like um, sort of arrogantly uh, telling other people, you know, I've been here reading Capital all day, and now I know (laughs) what is best for you, right? Um, But that's not... uh, that's not what it is, and it's not what uh, 
Engels meant uh, when he um, used the term. Uh, uh, he was talking instead about a mistake that's much more common among philosophers, in fact, um, which is to think that our ideas just emerge spontaneously from our own genius and aren't affected and determined by all kinds of external factors that we have very little um, say about, right? Yeah. Um, and the idea that if we want to understand the content of our concepts, we have to uh, account for that in some way. Um, and, and so think here, like thinking, talking about racist ideology as a form of false consciousness, part, part of what um, I meant by that, and part of what I uh, wanted to do in the article was to was to talk about all of the ways um, in which we cannot make sense of racist ideas, racist practices, racist hierarchies, and so on without thinking about power and without thinking mm -hmm. about um, the factors that shape the world we live in and shape our ideas about that world, oftentimes without us having much say in the matter. Yeah, I, I mean, I really love how the, you know, just what you said and how the essay <clears throat> does a careful rather than a sort of playing on our, our presuppositions about what false consciousness means. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just think that alone, which is not the focus of the essay, but that alone mm -hmm. is, is would be a, a major uh, accomplishment to revitalize that term on, on with some depth. But what do you think the sort of frame of, of false consciousness around thinking about uh, racist ideology, what work do you think it does that the sort of race wage discourse doesn't do? Or do you see them really as, as different registers or different grammars of the same sort of idea? So I take myself to be doing something that would be very much of a piece with what somebody like Du Bois means, right, when he talks about a public and psychological wage. But, uh, but in terms of, you know, what we might call a kind of more contemporary race wage discourse, uh, I think oftentimes, when we look at more contemporary discussions of this D Du Boisian theme, uh, there is a heavy emphasis on the psychological aspect of the wage and nothing about the public aspect. And when Du Bois talks about it as a public wage, he lists things like uh, whites being uh, more um, fondly spoken of in the newspaper uh, than blacks, right? Or um, white people getting lighter uh, sentencing or no sentencing at all. Um, mm -hmm. White people having better access to school. In other words, he lists a number of things that are within the purview of the rulers of a community to determine, right? Everything mm -hmm. on his list um, is something that's going to be controlled by politicians and bosses. Um, and so uh, if, we, if we kind of overemphasize the psychological wage, then it makes it seem plausible that r racist ideology is best thought of as a kind of spontaneously generated um, phantom of the white mind, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But if we think about the public aspect, then we have to be thinking about the relationship between matter and ideas again, right? We have to be thinking yeah. about power. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what I take myself to be 
doing. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. And I do see that as very much in keeping with a notion of it as a public and psychological wage. And I, I think that distinction is is so critical because that's the difference between hearts and mind discourse, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think psychological wage, I mean, I, I don't think that's a fair treatment of du, du Bois's account, yeah. but I think it lends itself to sort of hearts and minds uh, mm-hmm. discourse about about racial justice or or racial uh, you know, stru- uh, racial change, right? How do you change race relations? Um, rather than the the ideological, you know, questions of the public, which is really then about, you know, how does this, you know, because you have to answer how does a how does a racist society reproduce itself? Exactly. Hearts and minds. It's hard to talk about that reproduction, but the mm-hmm. question of ideology, you know, mm-hmm. and I think your treatment of it really gives um, gives a lot of of grounding to that that imperative. I mean, it changes the way we have to talk about the possibility of of, of social transformation. Thank you. Yeah. That was the hope. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was a great essay. Um, and I, it, like, it's funny, I, I had also uh, around the same time read uh, Nick Nesbitt's new book, The Price of Slavery. And mm. I think you all are going to, like, the two of you are going to make me sit down and reread a bunch of Marks this summer. So, yes. That's for better always, or worse. <laughs> that's always the end game. <laughs> Well, great work, both of you. You mm-hmm. probably unintentionally teamed up uh, to, <laughs> to change my bookshelf uh, for the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana, let me ask you about your essay. Um, I mean, it's obviously it's one of the things that um, comes up around the question of Black Lives Matter. You know, who are the leaders? And you had that anecdote about, um, I have to say, a really dispiriting anecdote uh, about the question at a Pacific APA. But, you know, something I think that a sort of first glance, people who have at least a first glance knowledge of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives, they come back to, you know, pros and cons uh, around the question of leadership. It's leaderless, it needs leaders, or it's leaderless, which is great because the time has passed for leaders. I really love that your essay, you know, was, was you know, took on the task. Again, I think this is a, the significance, part of the significance of philosophy, right, is the took on the task of clarifying, like, what would it even mean to talk about leadership and, and, and a transformation or change in the structure of leadership? But that question of how Black Lives Matter works with with around leadership is so crucial because, of course, the way we think about change, right, whether it's abolition or the civil rights movement or Black Power movement, Black Panther Party movement, you know, this is like a list of icons, right? Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Huey Newton, Stokely Carmichael, Lane Brown, Angela Davis, etc. But this um, title of yours, The Violence of Leadership in Black Lives Matter, I thought that was like, I love titles. And I thought that title, The Violence of Leadership, I really wanted to ask you to talk about that notion of violent leadership, especially because you know, the first glance at that ti- that part of the title, the violence of leadership, is really sort of, you know, it couldn't go further against our grain, the grain of really making leaders into icons and leaders into those who encapsulate the entirety of a movement. And as much as people may criticize, well, there were these other people, you know, forgotten figures. It is always, you know, we're talking about, say, the civil rights movement. The, that usually that recovery is to recover them as leaders, 
but clearly your essay wants to take a very different approach. So I'm curious what, you know, what is violent about leadership in this move in this moment? Um, and why this turn away from that conventional sense of leadership? Why is that so important? So I think it's important just in terms and, I'll answer it in two parts. One, the issue of violence, how I'm conceptualizing it and how it's connected to leadership. And again, this mode of leadership was chosen because of the Black radical tradition and the understanding of leaders within the Black Lives Matter um, chapter, which is now called the Black Lives Matter Global Network or BLMGN. Again, the name has changed throughout the years, so sometimes it's hard to keep track of that. But again, I think for many people, even though the ones that went to protests in support of Black Lives Mattering, in support against, again, ending police brutality, conceptualized it only in that one strict avenue. Mm -hmm. So having conversations. Yes, I support Black Lives Matter if it's against police brutality. If it's about Black liberation and other things, that's one freedom too many. And a lot of people's conceptions of Black freedom is always one freedom too many. be more patient, be structured in such a manner that's understandable to me. So if I'm trying to understand your movement, I don't really want understanding. I just want to understand you with the concepts and structures that are known to me. So every organization, every political party has leaders. Who's your leader? Give me a statement. You say you guys are upset. Give me a list of demands. And we will go to our leaders and you guys can have a, a, a sit together, negotiate, um, and we'll come to a political compromise. That's the structure of how things get done in this country. Mm-hmm. And for me, Black Lives Matter stood out because it, it intimately knew the Black radical tradition and it intimately knew power structures in the country and rejected that notion that we need leaders to engage with your leaders no, because what happened to past leaders in all throughout the Black radical tradition, assassinations, co-optations, mm-hmm. when you only have one or three, five leaders, that just allows more opportunities for your structure, your organization to, again, face elimination. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the reason why I really wanted to hi- highlight the leadership aspects is because you see that throughout the Black radical tradition is a conversation, whether it's Du Bois on the Talented 10th, like the early Du Bois, mm-hmm. or Karenga and misleadership, or again, Carter Woodson. Again, there's always been this conversation of what does it mean to get liberation and how do we lead us to that end? Mm-hmm. And for me, the one way in which I wanted to start this question Leadership, leaderless, leaderful. Yes, understand the language, but also understand, like, again, these figures are drawing off of philosophy. They're drawing off of the Black radical tradition. They're citing, um, as one of their Black liberation icons, like numerous chapters, numerous individuals, Ella Baker, the Kambahi River Collective, Black feminism was a central ideal. And so for me, that leadership yes, many people are characterizing it as leaderless because it didn't look like that structure. Mm-hmm. So who is your actual leader? Who gets to be the spokesperson for your movement? And in face of that, they said, no, we're leaderful. Each person can be has a cap, the capacity and capabilities to be a leader. Our movement is trying to 
to use Fanonian terms, make people actional. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to be a leaderful movement. Everyone has a possibility to lead. A chapter in Baltimore doesn't have to go to the national leader to do an organization, to do a disruption, a protest, to shut down a city. Or in California, shut down the port. Alisa Garza even talks about in a taxi driving on her way to the airport and facing traffic because protests were happening in the city she was in. And she had no understanding, no notion uh, of that actually happening. But for a leaderful model, again, if everyone has the capacity to lead, there's less opportunity for uh, actual movement to be dismantled, to be co-opted. Again, that doesn't mean people don't try to co-opt the movement. But I think that in itself is powerful to actually take Black feminism, centralize leaderful movements, but also collective care. Like, yes, we want to make people actional because they've been traumatized because they've been harmed by anti-Black racism and police brutality. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, that idea of leadership is one thing that I was, like, theoretically highly interested in. So reading Mm -hmm. Fanon's account of decentralization in Algeria, I said, okay, what would a decentralized movement look like in the United States? And aha, there was one going on. (laughs) So so for me, theoretically, the ideal of leadership as being leaderful, I just wanted to like clarify that for people like Mm -hmm. this was an actual aim. It's it's not a deficiency of the movement. It has certain benefits. Yes, there's no central demand. Yes, there's no one leader, but it's purposeful. Mm -hmm. And to that purpose, I think drawing in the violent aspect I really wanted to draw out the ambiguity with violence and violation. So Mm -hmm. from Du Bois, from Fanon to Lewis Gordon, the notion that if we're taking secular theodicy, that anti-Black republics are conceptualized as being without problems, that this Mm -hmm. is how the world is actually supposed to be structured. Police brutality is not a problem. It's an actual end. So if people are complaining, it's the Black people, the people that actually die, that they're the problem. And so any attempt to protest that secular order or that political order is met as a violation, no matter how nonviolent you are. If you take polling with Martin Luther King, over 68 percent of the country thought he was a violent, like violent. They didn't like him during his time period. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even Patricia Conclores wrote a book, When They Call You Terrorists, because there was a petition to declare Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization even though in their mandate, they say we're nonviolent. We do, mm-hmm. Like if there's violence at a speech, we try to shut it down. We don't allow it for our chapters. Everything of how the organization is structured is nonviolent and still it's seen to violate that order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on one end, I wanted to really highlight any attempt for Black liberation will be seen as a violation in an anti-Black world. And on the other hand, I also wanted to give voice to other chapters, other organizers who are part of the broader movement for Black Lives, who saw Black Lives Matter as taking all the shine, all the spotlight, over 90 million in donations. And for people in Ferguson, so the mass liberation for, um, so sorry, mass action for Black liberation, an organization that was in Ferguson for Mike Brown, again, the central organizers were not a Black Lives Matter chapter. They even didn't allow Patricia Conclores and Elisa Garza to speak in the St. Louis area. 
because they saw, again, you're an outside organization. You're getting the donations. We're not getting funds. You're not even connected to us. Yeah. And for me, that violence, like, yes, even as an idea, I really like decentralized model. It's in the practice that actually matters. Mm -hmm. So how are you actually making people leaderful? That has to be accounted for. These organizations in the BLM 10 plus, um, which is over 12 chapters now, have disaffiliated themselves from the national chapter because of issues with financial trans- transparency, with accountability. Um, and it's been ongoing for years, but now it's even more at the forefront. So mm-hmm. once Patrice Conclore stepped down as a official leader in her official executive capacities, BLM for a year, a year plus now, hasn't had an official leader. Mm-hmm. And it also hasn't filed its 990 forms for donations. So if you go to their website, if you go across, you can't donate to Black Lives Matter for mm-hmm. over a year now because of that incapacity. Even though they have most of the donations, the chapters don't have access to the funds. And so for me, a leaderful model has to be accountable to all, even in terms of finances. Mm-hmm. Um, and But if people don't actually understand the nuances of chapters, of a central organization, of the larger movement and the disconnections, all that's lost. And I don't want it to be lost. Um, I think the book chapter, again, brings out that nuance that whether we ascribe to violence or nonviolence, whether we're a leaderful model or leaderless or have a structured leadership, the fight for Black liberation is, is going to be a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something new, though. A, a mass decentralized movement is something new. What are the pros and cons of it? Mm-hmm. And take that seriously. There are pros and cons to a leaderful model. Let's understand it fully if that's the path we want to take. Alex? Yeah, so um, just following up on, I think, one of the pros to the leaderful model is just anecdotally, I think my students have found the leaderful model really empowering and inspiring, as opposed to a system where there's just, there's a leader, here's the speech, here's the things you have to agree to, and then you go to the protest or something, and it's just sort of like, you know, it's just sort of laid out there. Instead, sending this message that it's like, no, we actually, there are all sorts of different opportunities for leadership. And we're asking everybody to think critically about these things and think for themselves about, you know, what do they really want to sign up for? But it's like, whether you're going to go off to be a therapist or a social worker or a lawyer or a doctor or um, an artist or a video game designer or something like that, that in all of these different, you know, roles you might play, that there are opportunities for leadership and real, um, you know, participation in the movement. And I just think, I think my students have really found that approach a lot more, um, you know, enabling of their agency and taking an actional perspective than the kind of classic, just sort of, here's the figurehead, go along for the ride approach. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've had similar experience with, with my students as well. And I remember, um, I won't mention their name, but, uh, few years back saying, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, it's nice to not have a leader. I mean, I already have a mom. Right. And they sort of, everybody laughed, but it was a sense of, there was something deeply liberatory about that level of participation. You know, whether, whether that's organizational participation or just participation in the moment, 
I think the psychological dimension of that, or I don't even want to say psychological, the existential dimension to that. And that's really like a, a follow-up question I had and you know, to ask you, Dana. Um, I was thinking as you were talking uh, about the, at the very beginning of, of your remarks about, um, you know, one freedom too many and thinking about this leader full notion, right. Rather than leaderless, this leader full notion, I wondered if there's if if you see something along the lines of a of a of a dialectical uh, impact that that has, and I'm thinking about you know Angela Davis's lectures on liberation, famously arguing you know that there's this important moment that that liberation has to have right, and Fanon talks about it too, in terms of a confrontation at at multiple levels right with oppression and with the oppressor. And that, that moment of confrontation, it's not necessarily a structure of recognition, but that moment of confrontation is its own kind of liberation. I mean, do you think that thinking about Fanon, thinking about Angela Davis, and that black radical tradition that puts so much uh, emphasis on modes of confrontation for the, for the fullest sense of liberation, do you think this leaderfulness that, that you're articulating has that dimension, right? Is that sort of in the background of the way you're thinking about it? Yeah, so for BLMGN in the official chapters, because they really centralize tenets of Black feminism, um, particularly Kambahi River Collective, the skewing of violence is, again, not going to be Fanonian. Um, The confrontation under Black Lives Matter, it's still a confrontation, but the care and well-being can't be compromised. Whereas for Fanon, you can't get out of the situation scot-free, all hands are going to be dirty. So the best chance of gaining liberation now does not mean that you instituted a space of freedom. Even the leaders that got you liberation aren't aren't probably the best to actually lead your country because they only know how to deal in violence. Mm -hmm. So I think Fanon cautions that if you're using violence, again, after all means are already accounted for and fail, that yes, lib- like the state you're in is already constant violence. You're constantly going to be harmed. So certain leaders can choose violence and be significantly affected, but at least have the possibility of liberating the country and having freedom and well-being for generations to come. Black Lives Matter, in my understanding, because it's so central, like the Black feminism is so centralized in terms of well-being and care, ask the question, can we actually have liberation while still really having our well-being prioritized, whether that's bringing in therapists and meditation, whether it's having like retreats. I think it's, I think that's a direct contrast, but I think the, the part about being actional and wanting those confrontations to be a space where people, again, are empowered. I think Mm -hmm. both um, different theories want that Black Lives Matter practices that. But interestingly enough, because it's leaderful, the confrontation is not only with outsiders or your um, antagonists, it's actually with other leaders. And for me, currently, that's what I'm seeing. That's the confrontation with different chapters, different organizers and public criticism that leaders for the BLMGN, the the global national chapter, which has all the funds, is that they're trying to help other leaders are trying to hold those leaders accountable. Yeah. So why don't we have financial transparency? Why do we have to write a grant in order to receive fundings when we're official chapters? Mm-hmm. Why for the past years now, $60 million 
has been unaccounted for. Um, why is it that we know people can't even donate for over a year now because of a failure of accountability um, and accounting? So I think that leaderful model, numerous people, like, again, people that dislike Black Lives Matter, just Black liberation in general, are going to criticize the movement and leaderful model and say this is a failure. Like, aha, they were, they were leaderless, actually, and now they don't even have accounting for their money. Um, this model fails. But for me, a leaderful model, the failure is only if those accounting, those disagreements aren't actually accepted. And that's where I'm like, yes, there is a definitely a sense in which we can be more critical because Alicia Garza, Patricia Conclores even did a video where I, they, Alicia Garza said, I don't know how it can be accountable to people I don't know. And I'm like, in a leaderful model, you're accountable to black people. Mm-hmm. You're accountable to everyone else. Like, I think there's a moment right now where Black Lives Matter, the, the global network, has an opportunity to be more accountable on financial transparency to live up to its ideals. But that's the like the dirtiness of actual politics. Um, as I love the ideals, but the practice can be messy and dirty. But that doesn't mean the ideals are wrong. It's we have to actually live up to them. Yeah. I love that. So let me shift a little bit and Alex ask you about your uh, co-authored piece which uh, I thought was really important, but also was really unexpected. You know, the the essay talks about the movement, the idea of Black Lives Matter, and couples that to the question of capital punishment. Um, And so unexpected in that, like that was, you know, as I was looking through the table of contents, I hadn't anticipated Black Lives Matter and capital punishment. So I'm just curious, you know, you, you, the title is a question, so maybe as, as much as anything, I'm asking uh, the question of the title: Can capital punishment survive if Black Lives Matter? So, but I'm curious, like, why why is this the question that that you and your co-author asked, um, given how the death penalty really hasn't been um, part of the the sort of big public banner of Black Lives Matter uh, as a movement and discourse about it? And so, where does the question take you in the essay? Yeah, it's a great question. And so long story short, TLDR, can capital punishment survive if Black Lives Matter? No. Um, but the uh, the actual, um, you know, the history behind this chapter goes back pretty far. So the questions about the justice of the death penalty have long dealt with questions around racial justice because there are consistent pattern of findings where people who black people who are convicted of murder are more likely to be sentenced to the death penalty than members of other racial groups. And people who are convicted of killing black people are least likely to be, um, to be uh, given the death penalty. And so what you have is these um, interactions, basically, where the most penalized groups are um, black people who are convicted of killing white people, and the least penalized are white people who are convicted of killing black people. And I think that also resonates with lots of, um, you know, uh, recent examples over the past, well, I guess, 25 years of high profile cases of, you know, white police officers who have killed unarmed black civilians or used excessive force. Right. Um, and so for, for our particular chapter, the, uh, the first, um, contribution here was actually a paper just written by my co-author, Michael Cholby, 
that was published in 2006 called Race, Capital, Punishment, and the Cost of Murder. And he um, made the, the uh, I think, really crucial point there that too much of the discourse around whether um, capital punishment is just with respect to racial justice had focused on the injustices faced by particular black defendants and black victims and families of black victims. And the system is unjust to people who uh, receive the death penalty um, partly in virtue of their race when they wouldn't have if they had been a different race or and vice versa. Um, but uh, sort of his central insight was, but it, we also have to think about the way that capital punishment is unjust to black people as a class, right? Mm-hmm. As a group, um, as a as a collective, where um, uh, all, uh, you know, um, all American citizens and everyone living in America, um, in the United States, are all living under a regime where um, the costs for being convicted of murder are different depending on your race. And the costs for someone murdering you or a family member are different um, depending on your race. And so um, uh, Michael, my co-author, you know, he has a thought experiment analogy of like, if you have a town where there's just one baker in the town and the baker charges right-handed people a dollar for the baked goods and left-handed people $2 for the baked goods, then that's, you know, that's unjust to the specific left-handed people who have to pay more. But it's also unjust to all the other left-handed people in the system who, even if they never interact with the baker, they, you know, maybe they're avoiding the baker because they, you know, um, know they have to pay more. And so mm-hmm. whether or not you actually interact with the system directly, they're, you're, you're, you're um, you know, um, you as a, as a member of a larger class are systematically being uh, devalued, Right. Um, and so it's 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 in the case of capital punishment, it's like your your life literally matters less because um, the system is more is readier, to, more ready to put you to death um, mm-hmm. based on your race, partly. Um, so then Michael had actually reached out to me about sort of doing a follow up paper to that. My background is in implicit bias research. And so we were um, our plan was to inject um, to sort of think about, you know, what could be explaining the injustice, uh, the racial disparities in the system, and we think implicit bias is one piece of a large and complex puzzle there. And we were in the early stages of thinking about it when the Umbrella Organization, the Movement for Black Lives, released its um, platform in 2016. And one of the central planks of the platform, the first one, is end the war on black people. And then uh, uh, you know, within that sort of broader demand, they had a series of uh, about 10 demands about more specific things, um, some of which are, you know, the, um, uh, you know, s- sort of more radical things that are associated with um, the Black Lives Matter movement. But number two on the list is an end to capital punishment, right? And so mm-hmm. a recognition of the fact that this is a, just a really um, sort of clear case in which Black lives don't matter as much um, you know, in the context of the criminal justice system. And so um, we sort of realized, hey, this class-based argument that Michael was interested in making really um, resonates really strongly with the, the Black Lives Matter approach, where it's like, you're not just, it's like when this happens to, you know, one individual, when one individual is wrongly put to death in part of their race, it's, it's not, it's hor- horrifically unjust to them and their family uh, and loved ones. But it's also unjust to the entire community. And it's like you're living in a society where your life literally matters less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it did 
you know, the essay, I have to say, made me ask the question. And, and I don't know if you if you have thoughts on this, but it made me ask the question, you know, what what would it mean to just in terms of, of public discourse and presentation of, of the movement for black lives to have capital punishment? as as one of the central themes rather than a theme that you know doesn't come first to yeah. mind you know i don't know if you if you, if you think yeah. about your essay making that kind of argument which is, is maybe a little more prescriptive whereas you're talking about descriptive um sort of associative uh logic but yeah i mean do you think it really ought to be more prominent well it, you know questions about prominence are tough but i think i think one reason that it's less prominent is because it's something That's a that question. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's uh, well. I think I think it's because it's something that you know. As I said, there's a long history of concern about racial injustice in in capital punishment, and for folks who are invested in, um, I'm not sure what the word is, exoticizing the Black Lives Matter movement or sort of portraying it as completely out there in all respects. There's a kind of investment in downplaying uh, features of their of the movement that are. Um, you know, potentially points of common ground with um, other other kinds of movements. And so it's like, this is a point of common ground that lots of people who don't subscribe to every aspect of, um, of the BLM or M4BL, uh, you know, perspective, um, they, even if they don't agree with everything in the, in these movements, then this is something, this is a point of common ground that we could rally around. Um, and um, I think, but I think, you know, to the extent that there are lots of really, um, there's willful misunderstanding or, you know, or people are only just reading the clickbait headlines and stuff, then these opportunities for saying like, hey, this is something that a lot of folks agree on. Um, and it's actually, I think, you know, just it's like a very clear, literal case where um, there's a systematic devaluing of, uh, of black life. And but so it, it's um, it's much easier to focus on a slogan that people don't even try to understand that sort of, yeah. uh, you know, is um, uh, you know, makes portrays the group as so out there that it's, they're not even worth engaging with or something like that, um, as opposed to being like, hey, no, look, this is we can agree about this. And the logic of the movement applies really clearly in this case. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think in my in my own teaching, talking about the death penalty is a really clear case of how um, uh, it's like what it literally means to say, like these lives are not being valued the same. And, and yeah. um, what would it mean to change that? So, Ian, uh, I really loved your essay. I, you know, I think this, um, it's a challenge to think about how philosophy of language that's not sort of rhetorical analysis alone uh, can contribute to these moments and, and this kind of uh, volume. And uh, I really loved that, that yeah, I, I like the essay. I, I, lo I love the way you made this philosophical approach to language work. Uh, but I especially like that you, you, focused on this this notion of liberation which is such a powerful word but like all powerful words uh can can be slippery right and so i, I wanted to just ha have you talk about so why liberation and why a sort of philosophical approach to language that's not rhetorical analysis alone right not sort of literary analysis um you know why that approach why the question of liberation? And I just think it's so important because, you know, you know, the thing about language, and this I think is an important philosophical insight, is it's not just an expression of our beliefs, but, 
you know, an understanding of, of language forms our belief. You know, I think about the very opening pages of, of, of Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, which is, which is you know, talking about this in an anti-colonial uh, register. But when he says, you know, to speak a language is to inhabit a world. And that for him is a sort of condition of a, of a certain kind of resistance and refusal. But it's a broad insight that also, I think, really bears on this, on your essay, this question of liberation. You know, how we think about and talk about liberation is going to form our vision of the world in some way. So, you know, that's me commenting on the problem of, of language and liberation. But, you know, what was your approach here? So why philosophy, language and liberation are packaged together for you? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to say, which may not be the most helpful, but I'll throw it out there, is that when philosophers of language want to do something socially useful, um, we often turn to, especially in recent years, um, especially defective types of language or especially antisocial types of language. We talk about gaslighting or anti-democratic propaganda or dog whistles. And um, that's good. It's good for people to talk about these things. These are important phenomena to understand. But I think there are, there are also interesting questions um, and strategically important questions to ask about uh, pro-social speech and speech that sustains and constitutes, to some extent, social movements. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of, part of what I wanted to get at by describing the subject matter of the chapter as the language of liberation is that, okay, it's this pro-social stuff that I'm, that I'm interested in. We, 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 you know, I'm, we can also talk about racist speech. We can also talk about slurs. We can also talk about propaganda and so on, but I, or, you know, anti-democratic propaganda, but, um, but it's the pro-social stuff that, that um, uh, at, at least for the purposes of this chapter, I think is most exciting. I mean, you know, why, why liberation rather than, um, I, I, I don't know what other positive, what other positive uh, goal you could have in mind, uh, improvement, equality, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that, the at, at at least at least to a great extent the the movements for black liberation past and present have been about freedom from liberation from particular oppressive structures it's liber it's about liberation from uh mass incarceration domination by the police and you know substandard uh uh provision of social services and uh, you know, se second class citizenship and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe that's part of the, of, of why, um, why liberation language can be um, appealing or empowering in a way that other sorts of positive ways of describing the goal or the goals might not be. Um, I don't know. Does that, does that answer the, does yeah. that answer the question? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, you know, what I hear you speaking to, or what the essay speaks to, is the power of, of conceptual clarification. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, you know, it's the movement for Black Lives it could be, you know, an analysis of movement, right? Of 
black of lives mm. of even four right but liberation is i mean it's a term that as you say it resonates uh, across multiple geographies it resonates across multiple time periods mm. you know that that word liberation which is not the same as freedom but uh, but entails you know a, a deep relationship to freedom i mean yeah. it, it's it strikes me as an utterly crucial word and you know i was just curious if there was like a particular thing that you thought drew you to the notion of liberation but also what you think the this clarification of it this this analysis philosophical treatment of it tells us that we didn't already know or wouldn't know you know what, what do we see differently after your essay yeah, I mean, I think I think there are two things to say very broadly. One is that um, by looking in the first part of the essay, looking at what past social movements um, the movement for Black Lives has borrowed its its protest chants from, its distinctive self presentation. Um, from you get a sense of what sorts of movements it's standing in solidarity with. Mm-hmm. So um, there are, so, you know, take a, take a chant like um, El Pueblo Unido uh, Hamas Aravencido, right? Borrowed from the Allende government. That's, uh, that's that, there's, obviously it's in Spanish, uh, so it's it's about a certain sort of solidarity there with non-English speakers, but also uh, it's an internationalist thing. It's a socialist thing. Um, there are, you know, no justice, no peace is, is originally from uh, protests, as uh, to my knowledge, protests against um, uh, uh, lynching in Howard Beach, Queens in the 80s. I think borrowing from the past, recognizing the continuity between the murders of Mike Brown and George Floyd and the, the, the people that we mm-hmm. sort of have most captured our attention today and murders of, of uh, black people and mostly black men in the past. Um, that's, mm-hmm. that's important. Um, so, you know, when people say, you know, I think the, the, the public attention to BLM peaks around particularly egregious acts of state violence, particularly gruesome murders. Um, But there's always a consciousness of wider, longer-term systemic problems that plays into these protests and is expressed in these protests. And I think that um, uh, that's not always visible to people from the outside. And I think looking at the language of the protests clarifies that. I think there's also a potential to, to some extent, the, um, in looking at the sort of relationship between the rhetoric of BLM and, and sort of past social movements, um, you know, some of that is intentional and sort of consciously expressive of the political affiliations of the people who are participating in these actions. To some extent, it's not. Um, you know, what was, uh, was it Beyonce's like 2016, like halftime show where everybody is dressed in these sort of, these sort of, you know, Black Panthery looking outfits? Um, you know, do I think Beyonce is a Black Panther? No, 
but there's a what we might call I didn't put it this way in the in the in the paper, but but I've come to call it this since. There's a kind of latent social meaning to these things. There's a there's a latent meaning to the self-presentation as a Black Panther, which people might not be consciously aware of, but which you can which you can work with. Um, Mm-hmm. If people think, oh, you know, dressing like a panther is cool, and then you find out, oh, well, what do panthers actually stand for? Oh, it's about third worldism. Um, it's about internationalism. Uh, it's about cop watching. Um, then it's like, oh, there's there's this there's this latent radical power in um, these symbols, which for sometimes superficial or aesthetic or sort of gestural or something reasons have captured people's attentions. So I think that's one thing that you can get out of, out of under, of looking closely at the protest movements, looking at closely at how, at, at the art surrounding BLM is you can understand the um, conscious expressions of affiliation with past mm-hmm. movements and also this latent social meaning. I think the, the, another thing that you can get, I'll try to be brief with this is the, understanding what sort of distinctive or or new or at least newly characteristic or something like that of BLM sort of communication strategies. Um, it's not just borrowing slogans and, <clears throat> and rhetoric from the past. Um, and so one thing that you can, so take something like, um, widespread sharing of videos of uh, police and anti-black vigilante violence, right? That's something that, that a lot of the protests revolve around. And a lot of what keeps discussion of BLM active is that these videos are, are, these are widely shared. Um, um, you know, what are these, what do these videos do? How do they work? Well, um, partly they overcome, you know, testimonial injustice against against black people who have who've been talking about violence at the hands of the police for a long time, but have just been ignored. Um, you know, uh, and think of the Abner Louima case. I mean, you know, the, uh, the you know, people have been talking about this stuff. They just haven't been taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's relatively hard, though not impossible for people to ignore violence once it's once it's on video. Um it's also, I think, something that runs through. So, you know, there's a there's a strategic significance to these to these videos, which is that they allow us to overcome testimonial injustice, which has been an obstacle to organizing around these things in the past. Sure. Another thing that I think is kind of noteworthy about several of the um, uh, communication strategies uh, surrounding BLM today are the um, the fact that they they revolve to a great extent about sort of managing people's moral attention. Where do we where do we look, and what do we care about when we're looking? Um, um, that is in the case of in the case of footage of police violence, for example. Well, the person holding the camera is looking is looking at the cops and letting the cops communicating to the cop to the extent that they're aware that they're being filmed that they that they are being filmed and that they're being. That, that they're going to be held accountable in a distinctive way. Um, and then when these videos are shared online, letting cops in general know, and not just this, this particular cop, that, they, that, that they're going to be held accountable. Um, at, least, at least, you know, they haven't always been held accountable by the criminal justice system or by, sure. uh, uh, by their, own, their own bosses, but they, they're at least going to be held accountable by 
um, the concerned public. Um, or take something like na naming the dead. This is something that we see in lots of communication surrounding BLM. <clears throat> Long lists of people who have been murdered by the cops or been murdered by um, uh, uh, vigilantes. Um, and, you know, these are this. What? why do we do this? Why do we just say people's names? Why do we have hashtags that aggregate just other people saying the names of people who have been killed? Well, it's, a, it's about managing your moral attention. It's about managing where you look and what you're, what you're paying. Yeah. What you care, what, what we look to caringly, what we look to sure. with concern. Um, I think that is, I think this is also, you know, there's, this is, let me be perfectly clear that I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these strategies or that we need to give them up or something like that. But, but also noticing this fact about them, I think, reveals at least one strategic weakness here, which is that um, for a lot of people, merely looking at episodes of spectacular anti-Black violence just doesn't generate the moral response that you want it to. For a lot of people, any instance of police violence is going to be justified any instance of anti-black violence is going to be justified. It's just not, it's just not legible merely from looking at it, that sure. there's going to be a problem there that you need to solve. And, um, you know, I'm not the first person to point this out. This is, this is sort of a meme in the community, but, um, but, you know, if this is a, if this is a limitation of these sorts of communicative tools that they don't, they don't convince the people for whom, uh, any police violence is justified, for example. Mm -hmm. um, well, then we've got to do something else. You know, we have to add. We have to add some other communicative tool to our toolkit. So I think that you know, in that one instance, at least, understanding the sort of what's what's new in BLM discourse uh, ha helps us understand the the you know where it succeeded and also like what else we have to do. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, I've often talked to my students about, you know, we talk about, you know, institutional racism, we talk about sort of psychological dimensions of, of, of suffering under anti-black racism or, or being the administrator of it. But I think there's, you know, what you're pointing out is this, this sense of uh, the fact that our senses, right, that white people's senses in particular are so deformed by or I shouldn't even say deform, are formed by um, anti-black racism, like the very acts of like hearing, seeing, and so forth. And that's why, I mean, that's why I think these kind of investigations of communicative practice are really crucial for, for understanding the scope of the problem, but also the, the scope of the kinds of responses that are being mobilized in this moment. And I want to maybe as a way of, of sort of, turning towards the end of our conversation to ask, um, ask this question uh, of each of you. Um, you know, let's imagine, right, and I'm sure it will be true, but let's imagine, uh, you know, a wide readership of this volume uh, among philosophers. And in thinking about that, obviously it's an eclectic collection in the sense of it's not a single authored, it's not a single themed um, collection, though it's gathered around this particular issue. Uh, 
But I'm curious what, in for philosophy as a profession and for philosophers and philosophically minded people, you imagine being the impact or what you would l- like the impact of the volume to be. And I ask that sort of against the backdrop of philosophy having, as an institution, right, having a, a, this sort of 20, 25-year sort of treatment or interest in what's called philosophy of race. I, I just have to be honest. I, I'm really not a huge fan of that phrase. But as it goes under philosophy of race, right, which tends to be a sort of genealogy of race or like a half dozen key figures in the black intellectual tradition that sort of play a prominent role. This is a very different kind of volume because it's a philosophical approach to something that's at everybody's front step, right? So I'm curious how you think philosophers ought to walk away from this volume, both in terms of what you think the volume says, you know, in terms of challenging uh, our thinking as philosophers, but also how you might imagine it having an impact on philosophy itself. Right? Maybe start with you, Vanessa. Well, uh, one of the things that the volume puts me in mind of, uh, when I teach philosophy of race classes, one of the things that I say to the students early on is that this is an area that uh, – in many ways is one of the most, I don't know, I shouldn't say one of the most difficult. It has unique challenges um, because, uh, and and maybe I'd be curious to know, uh, John, whether this is part of your um, dissatisfaction with the term. Um, philosophy of race is really a uh, philosophy of language, moral philosophy, political philosophy, philosophy of biology, uh, some epistemology, right? It's really all of these things applied to a particular topic, right? A particular yeah. subject matter. And so um, now it's true of, of any number of philosophical subfields that you can hardly get very far along the way to practicing one without drawing in aspects of other subfields. Um, but it seems to me that in, in philosophy of race, it's, 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 the problems are so often so subtle and um, require such a thorough upending of many of our assumptions, speaking generally and certainly mm-hmm. of our, of many of our philosophical assumptions that the, the degree to which you have to sort of very quickly get a pretty good working understanding of central themes in philosophy of biology, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and a pretty deep uh, historical understanding of uh, shifts in what uh, philosophers have taken to be apparent facts in political philosophy <laughs> about, you know, mm-hmm. um, that it, that it, um, it, it, you know, those are those are unique challenges, especially when you are teaching it at the undergraduate level, but really for anybody um, who is uh, hoping to become conversant in the the subfield of philosophy of race. Um, and then that's that's not even to uh, sort of um, point it to the inherent. Uh, so, so there's a kind of inherent um, 
U.S. centricness, actually, of the term. I discovered this when um, a couple of years ago I was teaching in Germany. And uh, so the direct translation uh, would be something like Rassenphilosophie, which means something which has a very different, you don't want to uh, announce, right, that you're yeah, teaching yeah. a class about Rassenphilosophie. And so, um, and so I asked, well, how do people solve this translation issue? And the answer is that um, typically people speak, uh, they use the English word race. Right. Um, so, but that says something about like what conceptual kind of trappings might come along, right? With sort of taking the term wholesale out of the out of the English language, precisely because of the differences in local history, right? That imbue certain words with certain kinds of mm-hmm. um, historical and, and moral weight. So, anyway, all of all of that to say, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that I find most valuable about the book is that the book too um, addresses this question of the movement for black lives from a wide range of different philosophical perspectives and in ways that are rooted in a number of different kinds of uh, subfields, right? Mm-hmm. Where Brandon Hogan's piece is a kind of normative philosophy of language. And um, we have, uh, you know, Tommy Curry's work is always extremely historically and empirically grounded and kind of that's what he's uh, bringing to the project. Um, and so, you know, I hope that one of the things that this volume uh, does um, is to um, get people thinking about what is the full range of philosophical tools that we have that we can use to, to bring to bear on practical questions that exists like outside you know there out there in the real world <laughs> whatever we want to whatever we want to call it um yeah. i think that's um one of of its really important um contributions i love that ian how about you yeah i mean as far as what i hope what i hope the impact of the volume will be i mean i think Overall, I hope that it just keeps a discussion going. I hope I, I hope it keeps a discussion going. That you know, even when even when BLM is not in the headlines, even when um, questions of racial justice or black liberation are not are not sort of the forefront of public discussion, um, I hope that you know we can do our part in philosophy to, to sort of maintain these concerns and sort of, you know, hold on to the theoretical and practical tools that have been acquired in the struggle already. I think there's part of the, part of the work of maintaining that sort of discussion is in finding the right questions to ask. You know, I think maybe, maybe this is just me, but I think I, 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 I feel like I have this experience about once every five minutes of encountering something in the world that I, I, I know has to be philosophically interesting. I know it has to be the site of some, of some uh, fruitful philosophical 
reflection potentially. I just don't know what questions to ask. I don't know how to how to how to frame the problems there. And um, hopefully, I think the 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 volume does some of that. It 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 says okay. You know, we we all hopefully we all share the sense that that this movement is something that is in part because of its sort of obviously philosophical character, as we've already said, but but just because it's because it's so important. Um, uh, hopefully we see that this is something that deserves philosophical attention in an ongoing way. Um, uh, but, you know, if the book, if the book focuses that discussion and, and feeds the discussion with, with the right sorts of questions, um, then, then I'll be happy. Dana and then Alex. Yeah. So for me, I think the readership is complicated at the moment because we're still in the present movement and a lot of people's reactions is to, especially in philosophy is to dismiss anything current. Um, (laughs) Whether to say it's past, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, whether it's passe or significant, there's more time needed to understand the impact and influence, but the impact is here. Um, whether you're talking about failed impacts like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that just gave more money to policing, um, like all the costs are abolition and defunding was, again, co-opted into more funding to the people that having the most direct criticism, um, the carceral system. So the impacts are here. And if we're talking about philosophers specifically or the, the possible readership, academic, or wider public, for me, I always just think about what actually happened when this movement like reinterrupted in the public again in 2020. That all of a sudden, almost every university I knew, every college suddenly had a statement about Black Lives Matter and supporting Black life. And again, I'm cynical. Uh, a lot of it was done in bad faith. But for me, that recognition that, oh, that, yes, of course, we're anti-racist, of course, Black Lives Matter, and no further understanding of, well, what were you prior? Mm-hmm. What were you prior to that statement? Were you, ra- like, again, were you racist then? Where's the accountability <laughs> for that racism? And the cynicism, I think, is well-deserved for many universities. It was just a rebranding. Um, yeah. But it was, you don't rebrand unless you're facing an issue. Um, And I think just having this book, I just want to say like the issues are real and there actually are calls and demands that actors, institutions are going to act in bad faith. Um, They're going to try to destroy the movement, but the movement for black liberation is ongoing. So currently we're in the middle of it, but there's a reason why I still read things in the 1960s about the civil rights movement or decolonization. There's a reason why I read abolitionists um, and fugitivity and slave revolts or go back to the Haitian revolution. It's because I know they're all part of this larger movement for black liberation. And this generational moment is giving us something new. It's giving us a different understanding. And this book, because it's so eclectic, is giving you a nuanced account of trying to understand that. So if people or readers are resistant today because they're in the middle of it, I still think people are going to be returning to Black Lives Matter for years to come. 
and they'll have a contribution on a bookshelf or in a library and they'll gain that perspective. So that's at least my hope because I'm very cynical of people (laughs) (laughs) today. Yeah. So I love all of these answers. These are very, very encouraging for, for me as an editor on the project. Um, so I completely agree. And I think, um, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the readership, I think one hope is that the readership will not be exclusively philosophers. Right. And so this in some ways picks up themes that come up in Mark Lance's chapter about, you know, speaking to and speaking up and speaking with, and, you know, we are trying to address ourselves to, um, you know, practitioners in the movement. And the, and the hope is that that they read it and they reply. And so when we're talking about keeping the conversation going, it's it's really the hope is that, um, you know, that the, the book can have an interdisciplinary reach, but also that mm-hmm. that folks who are invested in it might, you know, maybe maybe one of their friends gets this book that, you know, them for their birthday or something, and they have an opportunity to read it. And then they can write a reply and, and, you know, push back or clarify what we're doing, right? We've framed a lot of this discussion, like we're bringing conceptual clarity to them. Um, but I think there's lots of room for um, uh, all sorts of folks working in different positions to, to you know, clap back in various ways and, and um, you know, clarify what we're up to. And, uh, and so I think, you know, keep, for keeping the conversation going, I think that's uh, a lot of what, what our hope is. And, and I totally agree that, that the hope is also that after this you know, who knows what happens after the current moment, but if these things die down again and then some other thing flares up, that this is a book that people reach for in that moment and they can see the traditions of oppression and resistance. Um, and this is sort of an, a document kind of engaging with those things. But I think, you know, the other thing, I think more broadly, the hope with doing this kind of socially engaged work is I think many of us, and I would hundred like point the finger at myself to begin <laughs> with, are, you know, political hobbyists in Eitan Hirsch's sense of um, the political scientist Eitan Hirsch, who talks about how we spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and following them in the news and commenting on them online. But like, what are we really doing? Right. And in, in his book about that, it's the book is called Politics is for Power. And so this also goes back to, you know, Dana's emphasis on like trying to bring an actional perspective to these things. And mm-hmm. I think so I think both for myself, um, you know, what can I do to, to actually be more engaged and not just part of the commentariat or something like that, but also as a teacher. Um, and um, so, you know, um, I haven't fully um, taken these lessons on board yet, but I'm really inspired by work by Ramona Ilea, Susan Hawthorne and Monica Jansen, which is not explicitly part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but they've got a, a website called the Engaged Philosophy website, which is about literally like how to bring activism into the classroom and like students mm-hmm. pick their own activist topic so they can work on their own thing, but it's literally part of the syllabus. Like, you know, this week you're going to write a letter to your, to your congressperson this week, you're going to go to a meeting and, and it, you know, culminates in a, a project over time where it's like literally, um, you know, trying to not just share information, but get people politically engaged. Right. And so I'm, you know, taking inspiration here from, from bell hooks or Paulo Freire about radical pedagogy and, not just transmitting information from, you know, my brain to your brain or from the book to you, but actually collaborating and um, trying to become more politically engaged to, you know, call back to Marx, not just trying to interpret or understand the world, but to change it. Well, I really, uh, I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, it's, it's 
amazing uh, set of answers. It's a good uh, place to conclude too, because I think uh, I like wrapping up the conversation with this um, sense both of what the volume accomplishes and and I really like that remark about a couple of remarks about you know this is something for the philosophy bookshelf across time and um, you know it was is one thing that really did come to mind for me. I was like, well, this is this is something that will at least mark a cluster of philosophers who took this moment seriously. Um, and I hope it gets a lot of eyes on it because I think it's, it's an eclectic uh, collection just as philosophy itself is really eclectic in terms of methods and approaches and sensibilities. And, and I think, you know, it's hard. It would be hard for any philosopher to hide from the volume because I think, you know, there's for each set of philosophical methods or interests or traditions there's something in here that offers uh, a challenge and an invitation at the same time so um so you know thank you all for your work on the volume whether contributor or editor and uh also you know it is what is it april 26th uh spring semester second year of a pandemic uh finding time and energy to sit down and talk uh it's not nothing so i also really appreciate you all making the time thank you yeah thanks so much for having us thank you it was great to be here all right take care bye bye